0: It's great to see you this morning. Hope you had a nice 4th uh, of July weekend. I'm going to be wrapping up our message series. This last couple of weeks, we've been looking at movies in our popular culture, in the films. So we call it box office wisdom. And what we're doing is we're looking at the message, the teaching that's in the film, and we're pulling it out and we're comparing it to what God's word has to say about the same topic. As Christians, we want to figure out really um, what God has to say about life. And we want to trust him and obey him because we believe that if we walk with God and trust God, it will lead us to the very best life. And so we're always being taught. We're always being preached at. We're always being told life works this way. This is what's valuable. This is how you should handle this situation. We get that in our media. And so as Christians, we really want to evaluate in a, in a wise way uh, the information that's coming at us. And so that's what we've been doing. And uh, this week is the last in uh, the, the series. And we're going to be looking at the theme that's in the movie Ted 2. Uh, here's a picture of the of the movie, we're not uh, showing the trailer because it's a little coarse. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with the TED franchise, if you can call it that, uh, this is the basic story. I'll read it to you so I don't mess it up. Uh, TED is a talking stuffed animal, but he's he's real, and he marries uh, a real live woman named Tammy Lynn, his girlfriend from the first film, and they want to have a baby. But Ted can't have a baby because he's a stuffed animal. So with the help of science, he's going to try for a baby. However, to get custody of that child, TED the stuffed animal. He has to prove in a court of law that he's a real person. And uh, if he can't do that, then he can't have custody. And the writer of the movie, uh, and also the voice of Ted, Seth MacFarlane, what he's doing is he's playing on a tension that we all experience in life. And that tension is all of us are individuals and we're all a part of uh, uh, groups. So we want to be ourselves and we want to be true to ourselves, but we're also a part of groups. And, and being in groups, we, we have roles to play. We have uh, uh, certain things we need to do to conform to the group. Being a part of the group uh, is a blessing. It can provide opportunity. Uh, Being a part of a group can provide security. And so we like being in families and being in businesses and being in teams and being parts of churches and being part of America, right, 4th of July. But being a part of the group means we also have to play our role. And that can sometimes limit our options and our choices. And so TED, the movie TED, is all about legalizing TED. You know, why can't TED be TED? Why can't the Commonwealth of Massachusetts just let TED have a kid. Why can't the Commonwealth of Massachusetts let Ted marry Tammy Lynn? You know, who are we to stop him? Why can't we just let him be himself? And it's kind of ridiculous to say it on Sunday uh, from the stage, you know, in a sermon. But actually, the desire to be ourselves, the desire to do what we want to do, this this craving to be me is actually really really normal. And uh, all of us are negotiating this tension between being ourselves and fitting in a group. And so what's the theme of the film? Well, If there's a theme in the film, the theme is, uh, I gotta be me. It's I gotta be me. All throughout the movie, the writer, Seth MacFarlane, uh, he's constantly making the statement, just let Ted be, just let Ted do what he wants to do. Who are we to stop Ted and Tammy Lynn, two, you know, consenting things, you know, because he's the teddy bear, from, you know, marrying each other and enjoying each other and having kids. And uh, this I gotta be me message, well, it resonates because we want to be ourselves. And there's actually a lot about it that's true and good. Uh, And then there are some things about it that are error and they can get us into trouble. And so we're going to look at that today because all of us have to decide how we're going to fit inside of a group while at the same time maintaining our own individual identity. So let's start with what's true. Well, what's true about it? Well, first of all, it is true that we are unique. We all have thumbprints and fingerprints that are different than everybody else. And that's because God made each of us unique. And, and God didn't make us, uh, you know, as clones of everybody else, but he intimately crafted us. We're customized. We're the only one of us that he will ever make. There's never going to be another Matt Sprankle, ever. There never has been. There never will be. They might be somebody with my name. They may be bald like I am, but they're not going to be Matt Sprinkle. And there's never going to be another one of you. You're the only one of you that God ever made. And that's, that's, that's actually a great thought. You actually find that in Scripture. Uh, here's, a, here's a passage in, in Psalm 139. It says, "For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is a poetic way of describing how intimately involved God is in creating each and every person in this room. We're not an accident, the result of purposeless physical processes, but that God Himself wired and built you made you how you are. And that's true. And I got to be me expresses that I'm a unique individual. I should be myself. And that's true. Something else that's true about it is I got to be me can oftentimes be a way to kind of push back on fear of man and people pleasing. You know, a lot of times you hear people say, you know, stop worrying about what they think. Just be yourself. And what that is, is that's us not wanting to people please and not wanting to just be afraid and kind of fit into a mold. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. In fact, God says that in in Proverbs 29, 25, he says the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but those who trust in the Lord are kept safe. If we live our lives in fear of people trying to conform to their expectations, then we're going to miss the unique work that God has for us to do. And so that's also true about I got to be me. And probably the most true thing about I got to be me, the most useful part of it is we are all actually unique in our experiences. All of us have gifts. We have abilities, we have strengths, we have talents that, that make us able to make a unique contribution. And oftentimes when an individual dares to be different, when someone in the group does something in a new way, when they innovate, they make a positive contribution that really benefits society. So an example of this in history is a guy named Andrew Carnegie. Here's a picture of him. He's one of my favorite historical figures. He's kind of a mixed bag as a guy, but boy, he has a very interesting life. Now, see, this guy here, he was very different. He did things differently in business. He kind of did things his own way. He he felt comfortable in his own skin. He dared to do things in a new and innovative way. And because of him and his, uh, his business, what he did was he made steel. He was a steel tycoon in the last century. He mass-produced steel. And because of his incredible uh, production ability, this happened. We won World War II. Now, everybody knows winning World War II is a good thing. Everybody knows winning World War II is a, is, a, is a great thing. Well, Andrew Carnegie is a big reason why we won World War II. And the reason why is because we could make these. These are battleships, planes, tanks, battleships, and we could make them faster and bigger and cheaper than any other country in the world. In fact, in America, we could make 10 battleships for every one battleship that the Japanese and the Germans could make in 1945, 1944. How come? How are we able to make so much armaments for war? The answer is because of this. Our price of steel flew through the floor all through the 1800s and into the 1900s because guys like Carnegie were constantly innovating and doing things differently. You see, everybody in business was telling him he needs to worry about profits and he needs to worry about revenue and he needs to worry about market share. But that's not what this guy focused on. He didn't listen to them. Instead, he focused on cutting costs. He focused on innovation. He was finding newer and cheaper ways to make more steel. And because of his approach... He drove the price of steel down. He drove our efficiency up. And by the time you get to 1941, America can make more than anyone else combined. And that turned out to be a decisive reason why we won World War II. So this guy, Andrew Carnegie, he dared to be different. He was an individual. He had a unique background. His mom used to tell him, Andrew, she'd say, pay attention to the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. You focus on the small things. You, you be faithful in the small things. And that got translated into cutting costs in business. And so this guy, he, he was different, and, and he benefited all of us in the group. And so it is true. We want to celebrate people who are willing to dare to be different. And in TED2, the writer of ted too tends to err on the individualistic side of things. See, as a society, you can say, you know, we should just conform. We should just fit into the group. Or you can say, let the individual be the individual. Let him be who he is. And and Ted, too, tends to side on the individualistic side. And guys like Carnegie, they're an example that that can be a good thing. But there's also error, error in I gotta be me. There's two big errors in I gotta be me. The first one is it, it has a really inaccurate picture of our human heart. And the second is I gotta be me can actually be a way that we mask two very destructive motivations that are inside of all of us, that constantly crop up inside of all of us. Those are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what I got to be me can often be used to do. We use it to mask these bitter jealousies and these selfish ambitions. And what God has shown us is that if we allow these motivations to continue to grow, it's going to cause all sorts of trouble for us. You see, in our culture, we have a very high view of the human heart. All throughout our media, movies, television, music, we're told, trust your heart, follow your heart, you know, be true to yourself, be who you are. You, if you're just being who you are and if you just trust in yourself and if you just believe in yourself, it's going to work out for good because we have this idea that deep down inside we're basically good. Human beings are basically good inside. God's view of the human being is a very different picture. He sees the deep corruption in our hearts. He's revealed to us the truth about our hearts, that our hearts are actually very sick That our hearts are infected with sin. That we can easily get about our own business in selfishness. That we can quickly exalt ourselves over other people. That we're willing to be violent to get what we want. He sees that. And what happens is, I gotta be me can often be a socially acceptable way to hide those things. And say, well, I just gotta be who I am. I just gotta be who I am. But what we're really saying is, I want to do what I want to do. Don't stop me. And so he actually, God, because he loves us, because he's good, he shows this to us in the Bible. So in James chapter three, verses 14 and 15, he gives us a diagnosis of our condition. And it's very, very, very helpful. Here's what he says. He says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. You see, we tend to hide it. We tend to mask these motivations. For jealousy and selfish ambition, they're not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual. They're demonic. So what God is saying to us is jealousy and selfish ambition, they're very common. They tend to come up. They tend to be what's motivating our actions. And it's very, very normal to try to hide these things. So what's jealousy? Uh, Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is a poisonous zeal. It's loving something so much that you absolutely got to have it. If you don't have this thing, if you can't do this thing, if you can't be this way, you can't be happy. You can't be content. You've wrapped your heart around something so tight that if you don't get it, if you can't keep it, if you can't be it, if you can't experience it, then you just feel like you're inconsolable. It's like a child who has a toy. And if they lose the toy, they just, they, they break down. And you can't calm them down until they get that toy. That's a bitter jealousy. A great historical, or not historical, but a literary figure that is a picture of bitter jealousy is Gollum. So here's a picture of Gollum. Guys, remember Gollum from The Lord of the Rings? Gollum used to be a normal guy. He used to look like all of us. But you see, Gollum had bitter jealousy. He loved the ring of power. He wanted this ring. And he murdered someone to get it. He wrapped his heart around this thing, and he was willing to sacrifice everything to keep it. In fact, in the movie, in the story, I'd never read the books. I tried, but I just, I got 100 pages in and I was still in the forest and I was like, I'm done. (coughs) So in the movie, and apparently in the book, uh, Gollum, he lost the ring and it destroyed him. It just shattered him as a person. This is bitter jealousy. This is in our hearts. We wrap our hearts around things like Gollum. And to get the ring back, he was deceiving the two main characters in the story, Frodo and Sam. I'll take you to the mountain. I'll guide you. Follow me. I'll take you to the mountain so you can destroy the ring. But secretly in his heart, he planned to murder them, to take it. And this is what God warns us of. He says in that passage, in the James passage, he says, For where there is selfishness and jealousy, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. All of us have a kind of golem-like love for things that are created, things that God has made, things that are good that we turn into ultimate things, things that are good that we turn into God's, that we have to have and we don't feel comfortable. It can be anything. It can be pleasure. You know, you've got to have fun. You've got to have food. You know, you've got to have this fun experience. If I don't go to Coachella, I'm just, my life's going to be over, you know? It can be possessions. You know, i got to have that new car. I've got to build that addition on my house. You know, I've got to have these clothes. i got to have this stuff, the new Apple Watch. You know, you're, just, you're agitated constantly until you get that Apple Watch. You can wrap your hearts around those things. It can be addictions, drug addiction. You know, we can get into sexual desires that are damaging and destructive to our soul. But we've got to have it. We've got to have it. We've got to have it. This is bitter jealousy. And God sees this and he loves us and he's kind as a father. And he's pointing at us saying, look, this is in your heart. And that's what's really behind your I just got to be me statement. That's really what it's about. It's not that you've got to be me. It's that you want to be you. You want this thing. This is not just the way you are. This is the way you've become. You've become this way because of choices that you've made. This is not something you're powerless. You're not, this isn't just your nature. God didn't just make you this way. You've become this way because of your loves, because of the things you wrapped your hearts around. The second thing he talks about is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition pairs very well with bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition is the willingness to kind of push and fight and do what you've got to do to get your way, to get what you want to exalt yourself at the expense of the group, to exalt yourself at the expense of other people, even if they have a legitimate claim. It's looking out for me. It's making sure I get what I want. And it makes sense because you're going to have your precious and you'll do anything to get your precious. And so bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, these are things that crop up in our hearts all the time. And God sees them. He sees them and he's warning us. He's saying, guys, don't hide the truth. See, in our culture, if you just said, Somebody said, hey, Matt, <clears throat> you probably shouldn't do that. You should probably give that up. You know, that's not really good, what you're doing, what you think, how you're treating that person. You should probably stop. I say, no, I want what I want when I want it, and I deserve it. Don't try to stop me. If I say that, I look crazy. That's not acceptable in our society to do. I just can't be honest about my selfish motives, so I don't say that. I'm real clever. I say, look, that's just how I am, okay? I've got to be me. Back off. Quit trying to, to impose your values on me. Okay, stop being so intolerant. See, that's socially acceptable. That's called a strategy. He actually says, this wisdom, with quotes, this wisdom is not from above. See, it's really a strategy. The problem with I gotta be me is it's a strategy that I use to get you to back off so that I can have what I want. It's acceptable in our society. Ted is using it so that he can marry Tammy Lynn and have a kid. And in our culture, the worst thing you could ever be is intolerant. And that's a great way to get you to back off. I just got to be me. Why are you trying to to change me? I'm not not trying to change you. No, no, I'm not. Never mind. Never mind. Go ahead and do what you want to do. This is how we get the group to get on their heels. God sees this. It's not true that I have to be that way. I want to be that way. And I'm masking bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And what happens? What happens is it just destroys everything. I mean, it's not hard to understand. Look, if I'm about me and you're about you and he's about him and we're all stuck together in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, it's going to be bad. Right? If we're on a baseball team and I want to do what I want to do and you want to do what you want to do and he does what he wants to do, we're not going to win. Any group where everybody's after their own good at the expense of everybody else's good is going to fail. We know that. And so God says, look, disorder, evil of every kind. And this destroys marriages. This is where divorce, divorce often happens because people get bitterly jealous, they get selfishly ambitious, and their marriages just blow apart. Business uh, partners, they end up in court. Carnegie, the guy I talked about, he ended up in court with his business partner, this guy by the name of Frick. And it was a bloody, and it was a horrible, and it was an expensive thing because of their bitter jealousy and their selfish ambition. It doesn't end well for us when we get into this stuff. This is why I Gotta Be Me can be a problem because it's masking something that can really hurt us. I actually saw this in my, in my own life, in my career. <clears throat> I worked with a guy for several years. He was a teacher. My, I teach at Claremont High School. I teach uh, social science, and I've taught there for a decade. And I, I taught with this guy for several years, and he was a good teacher, but he never wanted to change. See, he had been there for years, and he was comfortable. He kind of had things dialed in. You know, he did things the way he had always done them, and so he could show up, he could teach, and he could leave. There was very little kind of sweat and, and difficulty to that job. It's very easy to do that in teaching. You know, kids don't change. They're always the same age. It's always the same book. It's always the same content. It's very easy to do the same thing every year. And that becomes comfortable. That becomes easy. Well, a lot of young people got hired into my department. They wanted to change it. They wanted to stir things up. They wanted to try new things. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that. And so he kept dragging his feet in all of the meetings. He kept complaining. But he would always say, look, this is just how I am. I don't teach that way. That's just not. That doesn't work for me. Or, this isn't good for the students. This is just some pop idea in education. But what was really going on was he didn't want to change because that would have taken more work. He would have to stay late. He would have to do some things that were uncomfortable. I mean, I can identify with that. Right? Can't you? And so we don't want to be like, I just don't want to change because I'm lazy. Nobody can say that in a department meeting. So instead you say, I just got to be me. Now, it didn't work out for this guy. Because... The department changed, and the administration came in. They started asking him to make these changes, and he was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. That bitter jealousy started to pop up, and he started to go at it with our administration. And so then he called OSHA. He found some mold in the ceiling in one of the rooms, and he secretly called OSHA, and they came in an inspection on our campus without letting anybody know. And they find our school. It was a huge problem with our administration. And then they started observing this guy, And he started getting belligerent, and they had to put him on leave. Well, then he decided to get a lawyer, and he started writing all these emails, these very, very nasty emails, not just to the administration, but to all the faculty. And eventually he made threats against people in the district. And then he was arrested because he broke federal law. Because you can't send threats in email. And he's in jail with a million-dollar bail right now. Four years ago, he was in my classroom for lunchtime just telling me all the things he was going to do and how he going to get them and how he had got them and how he figured out the law and he was going to win. And I was like, you've got to stop. This is consuming you. You've got to stop. This is going to end badly. You've got to stop. And he didn't, you know, I'm, I'm young. He's older. I just, I, what do I know? And it ends very, very badly. It ends in disorder and every kind of evil. Now, we don't think this way, but this is what happens. And God loves us. He sees what these two things in us will lead to. And he's warning us. And I gotta be me can easily be a way to mask these two motives. So we want to watch out for that. Instead, what God wants us to do is he wants us to shift <clears throat> from being me to pleasing him. He wants us to stop being so focused on what I want and what I'm going to get in my, my precious and, and let go and trust him and start focusing on pleasing him. Here's what he says. He says in Ephesians 5... 1 through 2, he says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. He loves you. You're his children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. What's Christ's example? He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So... What God is always telling us is you need to give up this kind of selfish focus on on your own desires and you need to focus on our relationship and pleasing me. And we hear that as Christians. We come to church and we hear that. We read it in our Bibles and we say, yep, that's right. But then we go to work, we go to our families, we go into our life on Monday and it doesn't quite get translated into our life. We're back to the I gotta be me. We're back to this selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy. We see that a lot. Why? We believe this is true. We say we think this is true. So why don't we do it? What makes it so hard for us to shift from I've got to be me to I want to please him? I was thinking about this. For myself, what I think it is, is deep in my heart, I don't really trust God. I'm not really sure that he's going to be good to me. I don't know that he, ha- that he cares about my happiness. That if I focus on pleasing him, that it's going to work out for me. Why? Why, do I, why? why do I have that picture of God? Well, because my heart is deceitful. Here's another verse where God gives us a picture of our heart. It's Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, my heart does completely the opposite thing it needs to do. When my heart tells me about myself, it says, Good, trustworthy, awesome, listen, follow your heart, do what you want, be yourself, it's all going to work out. But when my heart... What my heart tells me about God is, you can't trust Him. You can't trust Him. He's not going to do good for you. Why? Why do we believe that? Because that is the sin that has infected every human being. We trust ourselves and we don't trust God. We think that He doesn't care about our good. We think that He's not going to try to. He cares about making us happy. This is what Satan told us in the garden. Last week I talked about this. Satan said to us. Did God really say you can't eat the fruit? And Eve said, yeah, we, we can't eat the fruit, we'll die. He said, you're not going to die. God's lying to you. He's trying to keep from you the best life. You can't trust him. Eat the fruit. Go it alone. Your real happy life is coming out of disobedience, not obedience. You can't trust this guy. And we still struggle with that. We still struggle to really believe that God is good, that he loves us, that he has our best interests in mind, that he can take care of us better than we can take care of ourselves. No. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of me. Because if I don't take care of me, who's going to take care of me? So what do we do? Since this is really a dynamic in our hearts as Christians, what do we do? What we have to do is we have to focus on the cross and Jesus Christ. This is, let's look at the verse again, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. It says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. God is saying to us, I love you. You are my children. You're lost children, and, I, and I'm, I'm coming to rescue you. I'm coming to bring you back into the family. I love you. And he says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Jesus Christ loved us. There it is again. I love you. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. What, what does that mean? Here's what that means. Jesus Christ sees us in our fallen, sinful, broken, struggling lives. In a life that is full of pain and frustration, we have death. Death is not normal. Death is abnormal. He sees this world that's broken. He sees people that are suffering. And instead of saying, well, this is what you deserve for the choices that you make, he decides to put on human flesh. He becomes a human being. He joins us in our humanity. He becomes what we are so that he, he can make us what he is. He becomes a man. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to sweat. He knows what it's like to provide for a family. All the hardships that we face in life, our God became a man to save us. He's a king who became a servant. He's someone who's rich who became poor. Why? For you, for me, because he loves us. Because the only way he could rescue us is if someone paid the price for all of our sin. God is just. God is holy. He's a righteous God. And when we violate his commands, there must be recompense. There must be penalty for that. We do that in our society. In our society, it's that way. How much more for a good God? But if God poured out his wrath, if God punished us for our sins, who could survive? And so God took the wrath himself. He became a man, and he bore the wrath of God on himself so that we could receive the blessing, so that we could receive the rewards. We got his rewards, he got our blessing. He got our hell, and we got his heaven. He got rejection, and we, brought clo- we got brought close into the family of God. We, we were made children. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you accept his righteousness, when you accept what he's done for you, you're born again and brought into the family of God. And the blessing and the love of God, it flows out in your life through the Holy Spirit. As you walk with God, blessing comes. So when our hearts tell us, you can't trust God, he's not good. He won't take care of you. We respond by saying, yes, he is. He has taken care of me. We look to the cross, we remember the sacrifice that God made on the cross, and it reminds us, and it melts our hearts because we see how much God loves us. We see the great price that he paid. He tore himself in half for us so that we could be whole. The second thing we have to do is we have to remember the goodness of God in our lives. God is still good, not just in the past, but in the present. As we walk with him and as we trust in him, he does great things. He shows us his kindness. He shows us that we can please him instead of pleasing ourselves because he's good. An example of this that I recently saw in my family was my son Jacob. He loves his toys, and he had a toy, kind of like this toy here, and he lost it. And he, just, he was just all distraught. And we tried to find it, and we tore his room apart, and we couldn't find it. And he's like, Daddy, can you find my toy? And I'm like, I can't find it. And I said, but you know what, Jakey? God knows exactly where your toy is, and God is right here with us, and God loves you. He loves you, so he wants to help you. He knows where it's at, and he has the power to take care of you. Let's ask God to show us where it's at. And so he prayed, God, will you please help me find my toy? (laughs) And then I forgot about it. And two days later, we were playing in his room, and there in the windowsill was this toy. And I grabbed it, I said, Jakey, Jakey, here's the toy. He goes, God found my toy, God found my toy. Why would God, God, pay attention to a four-year-old? Because God loves us. My son Ben, he got sick and he couldn't go to a birthday party. and He was really, really sad. And he was really sad because he doesn't get to see much of his friends right now because he's got a little baby brother and we don't get out as much. And so he was really sad. He's eight years old. And I said, Ben, God is close to you. He's here with us. He loves you. You should ask him if he'll give you a chance to play with your friends. So he prayed. He said, God, I really want to play with my friends. Will you please let me play with my friends? Amen. And then a couple days later, one of our friends called us and said, hey, can Ben come over for a sleepover? So I texted my wife. I said, did you ask them? Did you tell him to do that? And, and she was like, no, I didn't. Did you? I'm like, no. And both of us, we realized that God was answering his prayer. And when I told Ben, I said, Ben, guess what? Your friend wants you to come over for a sleepover. And I didn't ask him. He goes, that's awesome. That was what I prayed for. And I said, I know. He's eight. Why does God have time for an eight-year-old? Because he loves us. You see, when you remember the goodness of God in your life and you remember the goodness of God in the cross, it cures, it cures the heart that doubts him. And then you want to please him. Then, sorry, I got this. (laughs) To quote last week's message. Then we want to shift from I got to be me to I want to please him. We want to please him as a response to his kindness and love to us. So how do we please him? How do we please him? If you want to please him, if you want to please God, how do you do it? You obey his word. You look at what he said about every part of life and you obey him not to get him to love you, but because he loves you. You obey him out of gratitude because you, what can you give God? He's not hungry. He's not, he doesn't need any money, right? He doesn't need anything. What can you give him? What you can give him is your whole heart. That's the thing he gave you that you can give away. You can give him your heart. And you give him your heart by trusting him and obeying him and saying, I'm willing to give up anything, anything in my life because I love you. And I know you're good. And I know you're going to take care of me. And I really want to please you. How can I please you? And he says, live a life that's godly and good. And so we're going to finish by looking at some things that please him. If you want to shift from I got to be me to I want to please him, here are some things to please him. This is in the same James passage we read. This is James 3.17. It says, But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Would you like to please God this week? Here's some things that we can ask God to give us power and desire to do. The First of all is purity. It says first pure, not first peaceable, first pure. You see, purity is very important to God. Holiness, purity, that's not something we think God cares about in our society today. In our culture today, we hear a lot about God's love. God is love. God loves me just how I am. God would never ask me to change. That's actually not true. God is love. He's holy love. It's because God is holy that Christ had to die for our sins. Look, if God doesn't care how we live, then why did Christ have to die for our sins? The cross shows us that God is loving. It also shows us that God is holy. And if we want to please him, We want to be holy. We want to be pure in our mouth. We want to be pure in our actions. And that brings up something I need to confess to you all. Last week when I spoke, I used coarse language. I said a couple words that were not appropriate. They were coarse. And I don't want to say that. I don't want to be a bad example. And I don't want to dishonor God with my mouth. God says in his word that there should not be an obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. He says, Matt, I want your words to be wholesome. I want them to be beneficial. I want them to build up other people. And I use language that wasn't that way. And so I want to ask for your forgiveness. God really cares about my mouth. He cares about my purity. He wants me to be pure. And when I choose to be pure, I show him that I love him and I want to please him. Another thing he wants is he wants us to be peaceable. See, we don't have to fight. We don't have to control. We don't have to force our wife or our kids or our boss or the people on the freeway to give us what we want. We can can let them go. We can let them have what they want. We can work it out. We can be at peace with people. Why? Because God's going to take care of us. How do I know? Look at the cross. Jesus Christ died so I can have peace with God and peace with you. And when I choose to prioritize peace over my own agenda, I'm showing that I trust him, that I love him. I'm saying, God, I don't need to get my way because I know you're going to take care of me. So I'm going to love this person. I'm going to be at peace with this person. Are there people in your life that you have conflict with right now? Is there conflict in your marriage, conflict in your family, conflict at work, conflict in other areas? How can you go about being a man of peace? How can you clear it up? How can you reconcile? When you do that, you're showing you're trusting in God. It's showing that you're following the example of Christ. That pleases God. It also pleases God for us to be gentle. Gentle means strong, like a lion, but controlled, like a lamb. Jesus Christ is God of the universe. All power in heaven and earth, and yet he becomes a human being with all the finite limitations of humanity. Why did he do that? Why did he control his power into a human life for me, for my good? And when I take my power that I have and I use it for my kids' benefits rather than overpower them to get what I want or overpower my wife to get what I want or to push at church to get what I want, but instead I use my strengths to benefit other people, I'm showing that I trust in God. I don't need to push people around because he's going to take care of me. How do I know that? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. I know that. What about openness to reason? Well, I don't like to be open to reason. If I get new information, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to hear what the Bible has to say about certain topics because, uh, well, then I wouldn't be able to do what I want to do. So I'm not open to that. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to get new facts. I don't want new information because I know that that knowledge will lead me to a course of behavior that I don't want to to do it. I don't want to give up what I really love. And so I'm not open to reason. I'm not open to conversation. I don't really want to know what God has to say about topics. But you know what? When you know the love of God and you see him taking care of you and you know that he can take care of you so much better than you can take care of yourselves, that he can replace what you give up with something a thousand times better, then you can kind of let go of this controlling life where you have to ensure your outcomes and you can trust him and you can be open to reason. You can find out what pleases him because it's not going to cost you. You're not doing it to get him to love you. You're doing it because he loves you. You're doing it to please him. Openness to reason is a characteristic of someone who trusts in Jesus Christ and full of mercy. God was merciful to me. He didn't pour out his wrath on me. He didn't cast me out. I didn't face hell. Christ did. That's not fair. But that's mercy. So when I don't grind people to dust, when I don't demand they pay every penny for the thing they did wrong, but I show mercy, what I'm doing is I'm actually showing that I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I trust his example and I know that God's going to take care of me. I don't have to extract out of people what's due me because God will take care of me. How do I know God will take care of me? I look at the cross. Full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. I could, we could go on and on, but my time is up. There is a way to live that pleases God. But our problem isn't not knowing what God wants. Our problem is, is we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it because we don't trust He's going to be good to us. Because deep in our hearts we have sin. It lies to us about ourselves. It lies to us about God. But when we look at the cross and we see the love of God in Jesus Christ... When we look at the examples of people in the church who have walked with God, whom God has blessed and taken care of, who is again and again and again. A lot of us in this congregation have recently gotten new jobs. That's a blessing. There's been a lot of new babies. That's a blessing. When we look around and see all the goodness of God, when we remember his work on the cross, it stirs our hearts. It reminds us he is good. He can be trusted. He will take care of me. And then we want, we want to please him. How do I please him? I want to please him. And then we go to his word and we find what he says about anything and we're willing to give anything up if it pleases Jesus Christ because he is taking care of us. That's the Christian life and you can trust God. He'll take care of you. There's nothing you can let go that he's not going to replace with something way better. You want to be you? You'll never be more yourself. You'll never be more what God made you than in a relationship with him through his son. So we want to shift from I got to be me to I want to please him. And I hope you make that shift this week. So let's wrap up by looking at some next steps. If you take out your connection card, you'll see there's some next steps in the program. And there's some things that you can do to respond maybe to what God has done. Maybe God has spoken to you today. Maybe his Holy Spirit has tapped, 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 tapped on your heart about something. I want to encourage you to not just brush that aside, which I've often done, but to say, Lord, what is, it you, what is it you're saying to me? What do you want me to do? It may be that God is saying, it's, t- it's time. It's time for you for the first time in your life to stop trusting your own righteousness and your own moral record and trying to be good enough to earn my love and just accept my love because of what I've done for you in my son. It's time for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to finally become a Christian, to finally come and be a part of the family of God. So maybe you want to make that commitment. Please let us know. We'd love to p- pray with you and help you with that. Or maybe um, you want to get to know more Christ's example. You're thinking, now, Jesus is pretty awesome. I want to know more about Jesus Christ. Well, spend some time with him this week reading the book of Mark. It's not very long. It's an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing to learn who God is. And you'll never figure out who God is more than looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's one of us, and yet he's God. And he reveals God to the human race. So read the book of Mark. Or maybe God has said to you, I need to shift from I gotta be me to I wanna please him in some specific way. Maybe there's some way that you need to make that shift. I wanna encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your truth, your word that is a ballast, that is a ruler and a standard that helps us line up our lives with you. You are good. You love us. We can trust you. We see that in sending your Son to die on the cross. And we ask, God, that you would change our minds so that we see you as you are, that we put our faith in you, and that out of our great gratitude and love for what you have done for us, that we would want to obey you and want to please you, and that you would show us how to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.